Hey, my name is Phil, and this is my wife, Meredith, and we are the pastors here at Cornerstone Church. We're so glad that you have connected with us here today and that you're getting ready to listen to a message that we know is going to build a resilient faith in your life. Right now, in this moment and in our days ahead, let's continue declaring Jesus over every situation. Enjoy the message. Hey, I am just really looking forward to this um, message today. You know, we have been in the midst of a series that we've been calling for the culture. And God has been speaking to us about the culture that we live in and the culture that he came to establish. It's been challenging me, and I know it's been challenging you to relook at our assumptions about life, to relook at the things that we think that we know and the norms that we have and the way that we've been taught to interact. And it's been taking a little bit, and we've been sitting on it because there's just something about the way that you've always done things that we don't always look back and reassess. So we've been taking some time to say, God, show us your way over our way. Amen? Del, I'm a little bit loud in my monitors, if I could come down a bit. And when we were talking last week, last week we were talking about the questions that we ask ourselves and the things that we say to ourselves. And wondering if the things that we say to ourselves and the questions that we ask ourselves are in alignment with what God is asking. Because the questions that we ask ourselves tell us a lot about the way that we interact in the world. So I want to start today by asking you a question. What is fair? How do you define fairness? The way that you answer that question tells me a lot about the paradigm that you live your life in. The things that you thought when I said, what is fair, tells us a lot about the paradigm that you live in, the way that you see the world that you live in, and the way that you see the world that you live in has a lot to do with then the way that you interact with people and the way that you engage in your day-to-day life and the way that you interact with others and the way that you engage in your day-to-day life has a lot to do with the culture that you establish in your life. And the question we keep asking is, is the culture that I'm creating and the culture that I'm living in in alignment with the culture that God came to give me? Are you living for the culture that Christ gave us or are you living for the culture that the world has given you? And when we come to define fairness, There are probably two main categories that you fell in. One is that fairness is treating everyone the same. And the other is that fairness would be treating everyone as their unique situation requires. Let me give you an example. Fairness to group one is I'm passing out ice cream cones. Everybody gets a single scoop chocolate chip ice cream cone. That seems fair. And fairness to group two says, well, I'm passing out ice cream cones, but some of us are kids, so we need less calories, and some of us are adults, so they need more calories, and some of us are diabetics, so they need sugar-free ice cream, and some of us are vegan, so they need dairy-free ice cream, so it's fair for me to make sure that everyone has what they need. That's another definition of fairness. Don't preach the message you're preaching. Just wait and let me preach the message I'm preaching. 
because God has a definition of fairness. And the question is, are we defining fairness on our own terms or are we defining it by him? Because both of those responses are acceptable responses. Both of those definitions of fairness are reasonable explanations for fairness and ways to interact with the people around you. But what we are asking is, where do my definitions, where do my assumptions, where do my norms and my biases not align with the culture that God came to establish? If you remember in Matthew 4 and 17, it says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here, or the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, turn away in a new direction, turn away from the cultural norms that you have been used to, turn away from the things that have been established in your life, turn away from your assumptions and the way that you let go of the thing that you have been so used to and so comfortable with and grab a hold of a new direction for living. Grab a hold of a new way and a new path, grab a hold of kingdom living instead of what you have always known. I came to give you something new, to send you in a new direction. And this is the thing about Jesus' new direction. It is totally countercultural. It is totally flip from many of the things that we assume and that we live in. He came and he started saying things like, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. And we were like, Jesus, I don't know if you've ever gotten a gift, but it's pretty cool to receive. And he said, no, no, no. But in the thing that I'm doing now, it's more blessed. There is greater blessing. There is greater joy. There is greater return when you give than when you receive. He said this other really crazy thing. He said, when you're persecuted, when people come against you, I want you to bless those people. I want you to pray for those people. I want you to lift them up in prayer. And, and we're like, no, okay. Jesus, now you're just getting crazy because it's more blessed for me to plot a way of vengeance on those who have persecuted me. It feels in myself more blessed for me to front on them and to up it another level that if you came at me with a seven, I'm gonna come at you with a nine just to remind you who that is what feels more blessed. And Jesus said, not in my kingdom. That's the culture that you were raised in. That's the culture you were taught. That's the culture that's perpetuated to you outside. But in my kingdom, it's more blessed to bless those who persecute you. Jesus does this other thing that I think is so cool, which is that he takes things that were meant one way in your life and he turns them to mean something else totally different in your life. Things that the Joseph summarized it best all the way in the Old Testament when he said, you meant it for my evil, but God turned it around and he used it for my good and for the saving of many. We'll always leave that part out. We're so self-centered. But he said, and for the saving of many. There's this part in Acts, it's one of my favorite things, when the disciples and the early apostles, they're going into different territories. And as they go into this new territory, this group that's against them says, those who have turned the world upside down have come here also. 
and we hear it and they heard it and they were like, yes, this is our badge of honor. This is our pride that we are those who have come and are establishing his kingdom way. And what happens when we establish his kingdom way is that everything gets turned all the way upside down and word begin to spread that those who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And for generations, believers carry it as a badge of honor and as a token of pride. And we start to say, yes, make us those who have turned the world up. Let it be said in our city, oh, there are those who turned the world. They turned this city all the way upside down for the good of his kingdom purpose. Let the people of this house, let the people of this church be said about them in the city of Toledo that we are those who have turned the world upside down. But that's not what they meant when they said it about him. It was an insult. They were insulting the apostles, but there's something about the counterintuitive, flip it all around, turn it anyway kind of God that we serve that he said, oh, I'll take that insult that they meant to slander you, and I've turned it, and I've made it your badge of honor. Oh, I want to tell you, college student, I know that they say about you, oh, you're so prude, and oh, he's so pure, and he thinks he's so, no, the thing that they sent to slander you is the very badge of honor that God put on you. Yes, you are the one who stood out from the crowd. You are the one who lived in a counter-cultural way. God has a way of turning things in his kingdom culture because it doesn't always make sense. And when Jesus comes to talk to us about fairness, he comes to talk to us in a new way and grant us a fresh definition. He's talking to us about looking at things through his kingdom culture. I'm gonna tell you a story. Um, where are all my firstborns at? Come on, who's, yes, bless you. You're overachieving and you're responsible. You have a maintained level of anxiety in your life. Good on you for leading the charge, my people. Now, I want to tell you a tale that many of my firstborns will relate to about the great injustice that every firstborn child faces which is that if you are a firstborn child, I don't care if you have one younger sibling or seven younger siblings, you will witness in your years of growing up a trickling down and a numbing down of the rules in your household. I know, there's a therapy group available after service for all of you. <laughs> That's a joke, don't show up anyway. Okay, because this is what happens is there are rules and guidelines that you and I want to talk you through one of these rules and one of these boundaries that I had so unjustly broken in my life. I'm going to tell you a little bit about my age, which is that I was in my early teen years when the heroic movie Titanic came out in the theaters. Leo and Kate graced the scenes and everybody, I mean everybody was seeing this movie. And this is before on-demand days. Everybody was going to the theater multiple times to repeatedly see this love tale of these two lovers and their tragic story, except Meredith. Because in my early teen years, my parents did not deem the movie content appropriate for me. And so I watched all of my friends go and see this movie time and time again, and I was not allowed to see it until one joyous day when we were at home and we now had the VHS 
of Titanic. And my parents said, we can watch this movie tonight. And I felt all of my triumph, and then it was sucked away from me when I found out that my younger brother, who was three years younger than me, was also going to be getting to participate in watching the movie along with me. I can feel that you feel my pain and you can hear that I have not all the way healed from this very traumatic moment in my life of having to sit there and have the joy of getting to watch the movie sucked away from me by learning that he was going to get to watch the movie as well. Now how you feel about my very sad tale that I just told you has a lot to do with who you identify with in the story. If you, like me, are an older sibling, potentially especially, if you are currently a teenage or young adult older sibling in the midst of watching your younger siblings get more and more relaxed guidelines on them, you feel the deep injustice that was served up to me in not being able to watch this movie. However, if you're a parent and you're relating to this story from a parent's perspective, you might be thinking how it's pretty reasonable to know that different kids have different temperaments and how watching a movie at your at-home environment is very different than sending your kid away to a theater or you feel how your kids just wear you down after a while. Or maybe a little bit more optimistically, the fact that after several kids, you have a little bit more wisdom about what lines were really worth it and what things you held to that in the end you said, I probably held that too hard with the first one and I didn't need to hold it so hard. You relate to the parent in the story and you think maybe it wasn't so bad. And if you are the younger sibling, you are rejoicing in the great joy and blessing it is to be the fourth child who's sliding under the radar doing whatever you want out there, apparently. Who you relate to in the story has a lot to do with how you interpret the fairness or the injustice of the story. Now, Jesus had a story that he told his disciples that is far more eloquent than the story that I just told you about how he was defining fairness in his kingdom. He told them a story because he wanted to communicate something to them. When he's telling them parables and stories, he is trying to paint a picture, trying to give them an idea of what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. So if you'll turn to Matthew 20 with me, in the book of Matthew and in chapter 20, Jesus tells them this story about a man who owned a vineyard and the workers who worked for him. It starts in Matthew 20 and verse 1. It says, for the kingdom of heaven is like. He is giving us a picture of what it means to be part of this kingdom that he came to establish. The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Sorry. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. That's probably about 9 o'clock. He went out at 6 a.m. and hired the early workers, then came back out at what would be the third hour or around 9 o'clock, and he hired another group who were idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give to you. He didn't negotiate a deal with them like he did the first ones. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour. He went again at the ninth hour, and he did the same. 
And at about the 11th hour, this is the end of the workday, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. So he said to them, you, go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last and up to the first. And when those who were hired at about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. And now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last workers as I give to you. And am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. It's an interesting story that Jesus tells them. There's a lot in that, and I wonder, as you hear it, how you're feeling right now. How you're feeling right now probably has a lot to do with who you identified with in the story. That's the title of today's message. Who you identify with matters. Who you identify with as you read through this story means a lot about how you read the story and how you feel about the story. If you identify with the 11th hour workers, I imagine that you feel a great amount of joy that the vineyard owner would offer them the same wage that he gave others for a full day, that although they only worked during the last little hour, what a relief it is that they are still going to be able to earn a full day's wages. Who knows why it is that they were still waiting in the town square all the way at the end of the day, but no doubt waiting there, they thought that their chances were gone to make even anything that day. But yet, to their great fortune, not only did someone hire them so that they could make something that day, someone hired them who was incredibly generous, and he gave them a generous pay for the day. He paid them for an hour's worth of work, what was equivalent to a day's worth of wages. If you identify with the 11th hour worker in the story, you think what a great vineyard worker this is, what a great owner he is, how generous, how kind, and you feel joy and relief and gladness that these 11th hour workers would have been given such an abundant pay for the day. This is a context of a story that would have been familiar to those who heard it. In Israel at the time, owning vineyards that were planted along the cliff sides wasn't uncommon. And what those who were listening to it would have understood is that though the owner of the vineyard had other staff that helped him work the vineyard all year long during harvest time, harvest time was a very specific amount of time. It was a very specific window because once grapes are ripened, once the fruit is ready on the vine, there's a specific window that it has 
has to be harvested and brought into the owner's home and the owner's barns in before it goes bad. If it's left on the vine, the window is very minimal. It's like two weeks tops that they have to get everything off of the vines. And so they would go out and they would hire many workers to come and work the vineyard so that they could beat the clock of when the fruit that was ready would go off on the vines. It's why in another portion of scripture, we hear Jesus say things like, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. He's telling us that there is a time and what a tragedy it would be for the harvest to be plentiful, for those who are ready to come in. Come on, this is a picture of what's happening. God is trying to paint a picture for us that those who are ready to come home into the master's house have a time slot. And what a tragedy it is that sometimes there are those whose hearts are ready, whose lives are ready, whose fruit of who they are is ready for the moment but there are not enough workers to come and bring them home. We need more harvesters. And God keeps coming just like he kept coming back to the town square and saying, are there more workers who will come and help bring the fruit in? And I wonder how many of us are sitting and we've been praying and we've been wondering why there's not more harvest to be had. And we've been believing God for harvest and he's saying, no, no, you're missing the window the harvest is ready I need more workers and so this vineyard owner goes out and he finds more workers to come in and to ensure that his harvest would be all the way ready And so if you identify with those 11th hour workers who came at the very last moment and were still paid, you think what a generous vineyard owner, what an incredible master this is. But if you identify with the first workers, with the workers who came out early in the morning, you probably had a slightly different feeling when you read that story. You probably felt some frustration, maybe even that you had been disrespected or overlooked because these workers had been working since eager early hours of the morning. They were the first in the square, and not only were they the first in the square, they were the first in the square who were obviously ready to work. He came down to to gather them, and when he came down to the square, these are the ones who were out front. They were out front standing. They were ready. They were showing that they are strong and they are capable. I just imagine them standing there. They're the ones waving their hands as big as they can, showing how well they worship. I mean, showing how well they work because they want to be seen. They want to be noticed. They want the vineyard owner to know just how incredible they are. And so he calls them and they come in and they work all day long. That's not a slight on them. They are good workers. They have been working all day from the early hour to late. It was probably a 10 or a 12 hour working day. They were working and they worked through the heavy, hard, hot heat of the day. They had earned every single portion of the payment that was owed to them. They had worked it just like they had promised to. And so I have to wonder when I read the story, 
Why, when we get to the payment time, does the vineyard owner ask them to be paid last? He knows he's going to pay everyone the same wage, but he tells them to pay those that came in the 11th hour first and pay those who came in the first hour last. And it seems kind of absurd to me because I think surely he knew that this is going to cause some kind of unsettling. Surely he seems like he was a wise, profitable master of this house. Surely he knew that, that they, everyone isn't going to be happy. And if he would have just paid the, 11th, or the early hour, the first workers first, they would have taken their payment and they would have gone away gladly in joy and in rejoicing because a denarius was a great wage. It was an incredibly generous wage for a day worker. For him to have hired them for unskilled, uncommitted, one-off day labor, a denarius is equivalent to what Roman soldiers were making for a day's wage at the time. They would have already been overjoyed at the payment that they were receiving. And so if they had gone first, they would have received their generous day wage and gone off thinking what a great day of work and how fortunate that they were hired by a generous vineyard owner today. But for some reason instead, he tells them, I want you to stand at the back of the line. And isn't it just like God to put us in the position that is most likely to require us to confront some things in ourselves? Isn't it just like God to put us in the position that is going to make us most uncomfortable but most likely to grow? And he makes them stand there and watch as those who have come in later in the day receive the same payment that they have received, but they haven't yet quite realized what's happening. They've just been thinking how fortunate they must be that even the generous wage that they had been offered is now going to be doubled or maybe even tripled for them who have worked harder. And so when they receive what they used to be glad about, they're not glad about it anymore. If they had never compared what they earned to what someone else earned, if they had never looked at what they had against what someone else had, they would have still had the joy that they had in the morning at receiving such an abundant, generous wage. But now they can't be glad about the wage that they've received because now they're offended at the master. And even though the wage that they receive is incredibly generous and is incredibly abundant, there is an offense in their life because they don't know why they received something and think someone else shouldn't have received what they received. And now there is an offense and now who they used to celebrate and they used to say what a great and generous master he is and how fortunate they were about their day. Now they can't celebrate any of the character of this master because of their offense. They can't see it anymore. I wonder what offense you're carrying in your life that has distorted your view of who God is. That has distorted the character that he has. I wonder what you used to be glad about. What you used to rejoice in. What you used to think, I can't believe that he would call me unto his own. I can't believe that I get to show up and be part of helping someone else experience the presence of God. I can't believe that they let me come early to make sure that all of this is ready. I can't believe that they chose me to go out and talk to prison ministry. And I can't believe that they picked me to go out and pray for others on the 
street, I used to feel so glad about it. And I used to have so much joy about it. But then I looked and I thought, they just let anybody in here now. And I felt a little bit offended at the character of God. And I started grumbling about what I used to celebrate. I started grumbling about the things that I used to rejoice about. And Jesus is trying to sell them something about who God is. The parable is a picture for them of the kingdom of God, of the things of God, of who God is. He is trying to tell them who he is. And there are some things that we learn about the master. The master in the story is the picture for us of God. God is the master of the vineyard who goes into the city square, who goes into every place and calls the workers unto himself. And he's trying to teach us something about just who this God is. First thing that he wants us to know is that God is sovereign. Means that he is the supreme ruler. He reigns over it all that this kingdom has a king and that is King Jesus. That he is sovereign in his decisions. He is sovereign in his actions. He is sovereign in his will and what he initiates and who he calls and when he calls and how he calls. He is sovereign. Sovereign is like a theology term. What's that mean? It means God does what he wants and he doesn't have to consult you about it. And isn't that so rude? Because I have some things that I would like to let God know about how I think he should be administering some of his power. I have some opinions, and I have some observations, and I have some things that I would, but he doesn't have to consult me because I'm not king in this kingdom. He is king, and he is sovereign. And God gets to do what he wants without consulting you because he, that is what the master says to the man. He says, am I not able to distribute my own money how I want to distribute my own money? Who are you going to tell me what I should be doing? I am sovereign here. But we come in and we tell God all the time, God, you really should be supporting this more than you're supporting it. God, you really should be showing up in this way. God, I don't know why you keep letting all those people speak on your behalf. God, I don't know why you lift that one up and you sat that one down. God, if you could just get behind the things that I want you to get behind, it would really make our situation and our relationship a lot easier and that offense starts growing and building because we think that we are in charge of the direction and setting the culture of this kingdom and we are not the ones responsible for setting. Culture is set at the top and he is the top of this kingdom. He is sovereign, and he does what he wants without consulting you about it. And he is generous. He is a generous master. He is more generous than they know. He is more generous than they could have imagined. When they first met him, they knew that he was a generous master because they knew when he said to them, I'll pay you a denarius, a full day's wage of the working class for this. They thought this is the best wage I have ever been offered for this kind of work. What a generous master we have been called unto. How great is this moment? And they knew he was generous when they met him, 
But if they would have paid attention to how he was distributing his goodness and all of the blessings that he had, instead of being offended by their perspective, they would have grown in their admiration for his generosity. They would have seen just how abundantly, ridiculously, doesn't make any kind of sense, generous he is. Because of his good pleasure, he is generous. Far more generous than we can imagine. Far more generous than we could ever hope or dream to be. He is in a generous God that pours out and causes cups to overflow and lavishes us with his love. He never gives us just a little bit. When he made flowers for the field, he made dozens and hundreds in multiple different colors. And when he put stars in the sky, he sent them everywhere. He didn't say, here's a couple that you can look at. He said, here's more than you can ever imagine. And when he made you and when he made me. He made us in all sizes and shapes. He is an abundant, generous God who pours out all of himself. He is generous and he is fair. He is fair in the way God defines fairness. Who you identify with in the story matters. If I identify with the 11th hour worker, I think what an awesome God he was. And he defines fairness the way that he keeps summarizing everything that he is trying to establish in his new culture. Time and time again, we hear Jesus telling them, you can summarize all of it in this one thought. Love God with all of who you are and treat each other the way you want to be treated. And who you identify with in the story matters because if you identify with the 11th hour worker, how would you want to be treated? You would want him to give you the full day's wage. You would think this is Awesome, that is how I want to be treated. So God does not define fairness in terms of weights and scales and clocking in and clocking out. God defines fairness as have you treated each other the way that you want to be treated. He is a sovereign God and he is a generous God and he is a fair God. And this is good news for you and I because he is far more good than any of us could ever be. It's good news to live in the culture of a kingdom of a God who is sovereign, who is also generous and who is also fair. It is good news for each and every one of us that he is seated on the throne and that we are not. It is good news for each and every one of us that when we identify in the story, we are not identifying as the masters of the vineyard, but he is the master of our vineyard. It is good news. In fact, it is the good news. It is the good news that the master went out time and time again to offer the opportunity for workers to come home with him. The parables are pictures for us. The denarius is not so much about a denarius. It's not so much about what a day's work is worth or what a wage ought to be or how wealth is distributed. The denarius is a picture for us of salvation, of God calling us home to him. 
And he gives us a picture that he goes out and some come in early and they work hard and they work for a long time and others come in a few hours later and others come in a few hours later and some come at the very end. But his salvation is the same for every last one of us. Whether you've been saved for a long time or whether you've just been saved, his grace is sufficient for you. And when he pours it out, he pours it out generously and he pours it out abundantly he doesn't hold anything back he stands back and says do I not get to choose who I call into salvation do I not get to choose who I call my own do I not get to choose how I distribute the goodness of coming back into right relationship with me and he pours out his salvation to everyone who wants it And when he pours it out, who you identify with in the story matters. Many of us would identify with those first workers. We've been saved for a long time, and we've been working for a long time, and we used to feel overjoyed at our salvation, and we used to feel overjoyed at all of the generosity that he gave us, but sometimes we just feel a little bit weary. My prayer for you today is the song of David, restore to you the joy of your salvation. Restore to you the joy that you once felt. Restore to you the softness of heart that's eager to see every single person come home, whether they look like you think they should or not. Restore to us that joy. And many of us identify with the 11th hour workers. We have been waiting, and we have been watching, and we have been seeing others come home to him. And we've never responded. We've never said yes. We've never been the ones who were chosen. We've never been part of the crowd that gets to go and do that because we think we don't look like those eager workers who were waving their arms so early in the morning. That's not really our crowd, and so maybe that's not really a place for us to work, and we feel like we've been missed. And we feel like maybe we should have answered a long time ago You know, maybe we should have said yes that other time. Maybe we should have shown up to that other thing. And so maybe we just missed the opportunity. And we believe the lie that because we missed the first early call and we missed the second mid-morning call and we missed the afternoon call in our life that maybe we don't deserve the evening call, the 11th hour call. We believe the lie that that opportunity has passed us by. Or perhaps we believe the lie that we have been dis qualified. Scholars sometimes suppose that that the implication of why these workers were still standing there waiting in the 11th hour, I mean, why would they be waiting so late in the day, only hoping for potentially one hour's worth of work left? Why not just call it quits and say, well, try again? It speaks of the desperation that they found themselves in. And many scholars suppose that the the implication there is that these are those who weren't really the strongest among them. 
Perhaps they were lame. Perhaps they were weak. Perhaps they were elderly. Somehow they were disqualified from really being who you wanted to hire to work your vineyards. And in fact, the, the owner of the vineyard coming back to them and saying, I'll hire you, is another picture of just how good his generosity is. Because what he's, what he's saying to them is, I know nobody else wanted you. And I know everyone else came and looked over you. And I know all, everyone else only saw your lameness or your brokenness or your infirmity or what you think disqualifies you. But I'll hire you still. I'll bring you home still. And not only that, I'm not just going to pay you a portion of what it means to be in my presence. When you come home to me, you still get the whole daggone thing. You still get all of my salvation. You still get all of my love. You still get all of my goodness. You still get all of my healing. You still get all of my salvation. You still get all of the family of God and come home to community. He came and he called them all home and to salvation. If you find yourself feeling disqualified, feeling overlooked, thinking you should have responded a long time ago, I want you to know that the master of the vineyard is still coming back for another round. And he sees you and he called you and he qualified you, not because of the works of your hands, not because of what you could do, but because he's so good, because he's so generous, and because he's so fair. He is going to keep coming until every single person has been brought home into his house. Everyone who can, let's stand in this room. Because right now, I have the incredible honor on behalf of the master of offering that call to you of offering a chance to respond and to say yes. Whether you feel like you've missed it before, whether you feel like you've ignored it before, or whether you feel like something in life makes you disqualified, I want you to know in this room and on this feed that he has called you and that he wants you home. Today is your day to say yes to Jesus. I'm going to count to three, and when I count to three, if that's you, I want you to shoot your high hand high in the air. I want you to drop a hand in the chat because that is your bold statement that I am going to say yes to Jesus today. You don't have to know everything that it means. You don't have to know everything that it's going to take you down. You just have to know, I hear him calling, and I'm going to say yes on the count of three. One, because he is good and gracious. Two, because he has called you home unto his own. Three, if that's you, shoot your hand in the air. Drop your hand in the chat. Come on, today is your day. Thank you. I see you all up there. Experienced hosts are coming to you now because today is the day. Come on, church, that those who are doubting have become those who are devoted, that those who are lost are those who have become found, that he has called us each unto his own. Guys, I need everybody in red shirts up here. All of these people have raised their hands. Let's get up there and pray with them. We are going to pray a prayer with you online and with you right here in the room. And the reason we're going to pray it together is because I want you to know that when you leave here, the enemy's going to try and tell you, you didn't really pray anything real today. Nothing really happened. 
and they don't really want you there anyway, not when they know all the stuff. And when you hear that, I want you to tell him to shut up. Because I want you to hear the sound of the family of God praying this prayer alongside you. Amen, church? Amen. In the name of Jesus. Oh, I want you to repeat after me. I'm going to say it, then you say it. In the name of Jesus, I come to you. I thank you for your love. I thank you for your salvation. I don't do everything right. But I want to walk with you. Show me how. Today, I say yes. Today, I say yes. Today, I say yes. In the name of Jesus. Amen, amen, amen. Come on. From today forward, you identify with Jesus. Who you identify with matters. And from today forward, you have something to celebrate because you identify with Christ. Come on, come on.